never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Yahweh and pass the ammunition. The Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James. All right, welcome everybody. Pastor Eli James here. This is Eurofolk Radio. Today is December 17th, 2022. And this is the Restoration Hour, as the intro music has stated. So, a uh, real quick update. I texted Paul English. His operation is over, uh, successful. Uh, they pulled out his gallbladder. And so he's uh, resting comfortably, waiting uh, to recover to the point where he can go home. Uh, apparently, a gallbladder operation is not as uh, you know, severe as it used to be. They, they just make a small incision and pull it out. So uh, apparently it was very successful and not much trauma to his body. So he might be home in a couple of days. So that will be good because we need him around here. <laughs> because I can only handle so many problems. He does most of the work. When something catastrophic happens, he's the one who fixes it. So actually, we did have a catastrophic problem with the uh, Voice of Liberty show. They were having serious problems with sound issues where the sound was speeding up and slowing down, speeding up and slowing down. And we had the same issue with the server for two days where the sound was cutting in and out. But uh, we that sort of fixed itself, that cutting in and out problem fixed itself. But uh, I was able to talk Rick's son through uh, all the – he had to reload programs on his computer and get all the settings correct so that he could uh, – he's actually the – program director for Aaron, Rick's son, is the program director for Rick Tyler's show. And so he's doing all that for Rick. And so we got that all working today. So Rick Tyler's show should be good to go for Monday morning. So praise Yahweh that uh, uh, Paul English's uh, surgery went well. Thank you for all your prayers. He may still not be out of the woods, but uh, it looks like he will be back home very soon. And, you know, he'll probably have to recuperate for quite some time during the week. But uh, that'll give him time to think about what he wants to do next. (laughs) All right. Does he still want to uh, be a uh, knight in shining armor killing the Illuminati dragon? Uh, I can't imagine he'd want to deviate from that purpose in his life. All right. So thanks for your prayers, etc. Okay, so I'm going to continue now with part two of the name of God in the New Testament by George Howard. And this was published in the, let's see, the Biblical Archaeology Review, 
which I pointed out last time I actually was able to do a review of the article online. I don't have that with me in front uh, in front of me. So as I recall, this was like 1978 uh, that the uh, that the documents in question have been found, etc. But what we were talking about is the fact that the Paleo-Hebrew and in some cases Aramaic, the square letters, were extant in New Testament writings. Copies of the New Testament for the first couple of hundred years after Christ. So let me just uh, pick up where I left up, and let me back up into a page one that I was reading from here. And George Howard says, Thus we have three separate pre-Christian copies of the Greek Septuagint Bible, and in not a single instance is the Tetragrammaton translated Kyrios, or for that matter translated at all. We can now say with near certainty that it was a Judahite practice before, during, and after the New Testament period to write the divine name in Paleo-Hebrew or square Aramaic script or in transliteration, right into the Greek text of Scripture. This presents a striking comparison with the Christian copies of the Septuagint and the quotations of it in the New Testament, which translate the Tetragrammaton as Kyrios or Theos. And we concluded last week that sometime after uh, around 200 AD, with the fact that the Judahites of Palestine were probably well, certainly had died out and left, and all, all that was left was Judahite Christians in the area who had access to these scriptures and who began copying them. And because they didn't know Hebrew or Aramaic, apparently, or because the tradition or the habit of changing those names into Kyrios and Theos had become ingrained that that's why we don't see the sacred name Yahweh in these texts up after 200 AD. So let's continue here. Why do Christian copies of the Septuagint reflect a practice so radically different from that of the Judahites in designating the divine name? Or do they? We have already mentioned that while Christians translated the Tetragrammaton as either Kyrios or Theos, they abbreviated these surrogates by writing only their first and last letters and by placing a line over them to attract attention. What was the purpose of these Christian abbreviations? In 1907, Ludwig Traube suggested that the Nomina Sacra were of Hellenistic Judaite origin. In other words, the the dispersed Israelites of the ten lost tribes versus the house of Judah, those would be Hellenistic uh, Israelites, not Judahites, although there there, uh, were a lot of Judahites among them too. The first of these, so Namana Sacra is the abbreviated form that refers back to Yahweh. Okay, that's the terminology. But these were the abbreviations, not the actual name written. The first of these, he suggested, was Theos, 
which was abbreviated without vowels so as to follow the Hebrew custom of writing consonants only. Soon, Theos was followed by Kyrios, which became an alternate surrogate, and the first and last letters became an alternate contraction. According to Trauma, these contractions gave rise to the belief that the important thing was to write sacred words in abbreviated form. This resulted in a number of words being written in a similar way, for example, Spirit, Father, and Heaven. Okay, he's got, because I'm reading from the print copy of the New Beginnings newsletter, and this is, let me find the uh, date, February 1983, copy of New Beginnings, which was published in, I believe it's Virginia, and a very excellent article in this uh, Christian Identity newsletter. And this, in this newsletter, they routinely use the name of Yahweh and Yahshua. But I just want to point out that there's a couple of photographs in this print copy. A fragment of the 12 prophet scroll found in the Nahal Hever Caves. The scroll is in Greek except for the Tetragrammaton on line 3 and line 5 in Paleo-Hebrew script. The text is a portion of Zechariah 8, 19-9-4. And a second uh, photograph here of letters of a copy of Habakkuk. Column 10 of the Habakkuk commentary found in Cave 1 at Qumran, which contains two quotations from Habakkuk, 2.13 and 2.14. Note specifically line 4, word 3, reading from right to left, and line 11, word 7, in which a single word appears in a different script. The word is the ineffable name of God, Yahweh, known as the Tetragrammaton because it contains four letters, yod heh vav The Tetragrammaton is written in archaic Hebrew script, while the remainder of the scroll is written in the newer square Hebrew script, which is the basis for modern Hebrew writing. In the Habakkuk commentary, the Tetragrammaton is used only in biblical quotations. In other portions, when reference is made to God, it is written as the generic word L for God. Picture copyright John C. Trevor, 1964. So we've got all kinds of evidence now that the Tetragrammaton, not only in the Septuagint, which is, of course, a Greek document, that the name of Yahweh was inserted into the Greek Septuagint in Paleo-Hebrew letters right to left wherever Yahweh would appear in the Hebrew manuscript. So that, that tells us that the Judahites took great care and had great reverence for the name of Yahweh. They did not translate it. And now this author here, George Howard, is telling us that this process of not translating the Tetragrammaton was carried over into the New Testament, and he's found examples of it in New Testament writing, that, uh, again, the Judahite Christians who preserved these works and were copying scrolls of Greek and probably Hebrew as well, and of course Aramaic as well, they also were retaining the sacred names. 
So this answers the question, did the Judahite scribes of the New Testament retain the sacred names? And the answer is yes. And the conclusion we came to last week was that what was going on was as more and more scribes who were unfamiliar with Hebrew and or Aramaic came along and were more familiar only with Greek, then this practice of singling out the Tetragrammaton fell into disuse and they just replaced it with Theos and or Kyrios. So let's continue. In 1959, A.H.R.E. Papp, P.A.A.P., took up the issue again and argued that the system of contracted nomina sacra, which was the first and last letters of the Hebrew word with a line above it, it's a contraction, was of Judahite Christian origin emanating from Alexandria about 100 AD. It seems to me, however, that a much better case can be made that the system of contractions is of he uses the words Gentile, of dispersed Israelite Christian origin. The divine name YHWH was and is the most sacred word in the Hebrew language. So it is hardly likely that the Judahites of any sort would have removed it from their Bibles. Furthermore, we know now from discoveries in Egypt and the Judean desert that Judahites wrote the Tetragrammaton in Hebrew even in their Greek texts. In all likelihood, Judahite Christians felt the same way about the divine name and continued to preserve it in Hebrew in their Bibles. A famous rabbinic passage, Talmud Shabbat 13.5, discusses the problem of destroying heretical texts, very probably including the books of Judahite Christians. Yeah, the, the Jews would have wanted to destroy those. The problem arises for the rabbinic writer because the heretical texts contain the divine name and their wholesale destruction would include the destruction of the divine name. This further suggests that Judahite Christians did not translate the divine name into Greek. But dispersed Israelite Christians, unlike the Judahite Christians, had no traditional attachment to the Hebrew Tetragrammaton and no doubt often failed to even recognize it. Such dispersed Israelite scribes who had never before, or should, I, should, I should really say Hellenized scribes, he uses the word Gentile here, which we know is not a, a good word to use. The Hellenized scribes who had never before seen Hebrew writing, especially in its archaic form, could hardly be expected to preserve the divine name. Perhaps this contributed to the use of surrogates like Kyrios and Theos for the Tetragrammaton. The contracted form of the surrogates marked the sacred nature of the name, standing behind them in a way which was convenient for Hellenized scribes to write. At the same time, the abbreviated surrogates may have appeased Judahite Christians who continued to feel the necessity of differentiating the divine name from the rest of the text. After the system of contractions was in use for some time, its purpose was forgotten, and many other contracted words which had no connection with the Tetragrammaton were introduced. Assuming this to be generally correct, I offer the following scenario of the history of the Tetragrammaton in the Greek Bible as a whole, including both Testaments. First, of course, the Septuagint is the Old Testament in Greek. First, as to the Old Testament, 
Judahite scribes always preserved the Tetragrammaton in their copies of the Septuagint, both before and after the New Testament period. However, in later copies, they stopped doing that and they substituted the uh, Nomina Sacra. And uh, in all probability, Judahite Christians wrote the Tetragrammaton in Hebrew as well toward the end of the first Christian century when the church had become... Let me turn the page here. So the first Christian century had become... predominantly Hellenized, the motive for retaining the Hebrew name for God was lost, and the words Kyrios and Theos were substituted for it in Christian copies of the Old Testament Septuagint. Both Kyrios and Theos were written in abbreviated form in a conscious effort to preserve the sacred nature of the divine name. Soon the original significance of the contractions was lost, and many other contracted words were added. So, the question I had while I was looking into this subject was why did the New Testament authors retain the sacred names and why aren't the sacred names included in the New Testament? Well, this article answers the question. They were. They were, but only for the first couple of hundred years. And then the practice of retaining those names simply died out. Okay, a similar pattern, uh, let's see. Thus, toward the end of the first Christian century, the use of surrogates, Kyrios and Theos, and their contractions must have crowded out the Hebrew Tetragrammaton in both Testaments. Before long, the divine name was lost to the Hellenized Church, except insofar as it was reflected in the contracted surrogates or remembered by scholars. Soon, even the contracted substitutes lost their original significance and were joined by a host of other abbreviated nomina sacra, which had no connection with the divine name at all. Is there any way for us at this late date to calculate the effect which, is, which this change in the Bible had on the second century church? It is, of course, impossible to know with certainty, but the effect must have been significant. First, a number of passages must have taken on an ambiguity which the original lacked. For example, the second century church read, The Lord said to my Lord, Matthew 22.44, Mark 12.36, Luke 20.42, a reading which is as ambiguous as it is imprecise. The first century church probably read, Yahweh said to my Lord, and Lord there would be actually Adonai, in the Hebrew. So they would have understood that Yahweh was speaking to some uh, some Lord, whether it was Yahshua in the Old Testament, this expression would be to somebody like King David. To the second century church, quote, prepare the way of the Lord, Mark 1.3, must have meant one thing, since it immediately followed the words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the first century church, it must have meant something else since they read, prepare the way of Yahweh. The second century church read 1 Corinthians one thirty one, quote, the one who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. 
which was probably considered a reference to Christ mentioned in verse 30. But to the first century church, it probably referred to God mentioned in verse 29, since they read, the one who boasts, let him boast in Yahweh. These examples are sufficient to suggest that the removal of the Tetragrammaton from the New Testament and its replacement with surrogates, Kyrios and Theos, blurred the original distinction between the Lord God and the Lord Christ, and in many passages made it impossible to tell which one was meant. This is supported by the fact that in a number of places where Old Testament quotations are cited, there is a confusion in the manuscript tradition whether to read God or Christ in the discussion surrounding the quotation. Once the Tetragrammaton was removed and replaced by the surrogate Lord, scribes were unsure whether Lord meant God or Christ. That's very good. Okay, this is a confusion. As time went on, these two figures were brought into even closer unity until it was often impossible to distinguish between them. Thus, it may be that the removal of the Tetragrammaton contributed significantly to the later Christological and Trinitarian debates which plagued the church of the early Christian centuries. Whatever the case, the removal of the Tetragrammaton probably created a different theological climate from that which existed during the New Testament period of the first century. The Judahite God, who had always been carefully uh, distinguished from all others by the use of his Hebrew name, lost some of his distinctiveness with the passing of the Tetragrammaton. How much he lost may be known only by the discovery of a first-century New Testament in which the Hebrew name Yahweh still appears. End of article from Biblical Archaeology Review. Now there's a supplementary article here in the New Beginnings magazine. And this is dated 1-1183, The Earth Gives Up Its Secrets. Ancient Engraving of God's Name Found in Jerusalem. And this is from the Associated Press, Tel Aviv. An Israeli archaeologist said Monday he has unearthed a silver amulet engraved with the earliest Hebrew inscription of God's name ever found in Jerusalem. Tel Aviv University archaeologist Gabriel Barke said the amulet dated from the 7th or early 6th century B.C., around the time of the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem. Barque said two such amulets were found in a tomb chamber opposite Mount Zion three years ago, but only now were being deciphered. He said one of the sheets of pure silver was inscribed with the classical four-letter Hebrew spelling of God's name, which devout Jews refrained from uttering. And I believe actually there were two. There were two such uh, silver scrolls, and both of them contained the name of Yahweh in Paleo-Hebrew. And we have a video about that uh, find up on Eurofolk Radio right now. So let's continue here. The approximate Hebrew pronunciation is Yahweh, from which the English name Jehovah is derived. Barke said inscriptions of God's name were usually written on parchment or papyrus, which long ago disintegrated. Before Barke's discovery, the earliest known Hebrew inscription of God's name found in Jerusalem was one from the Hellenistic period in the 2nd century B.C. So this is at least 700 years older. 
The earliest Old Testament documents found in the Holy Land are the Dead Sea Scrolls, believed to have been written in the century before and the century after the birth of Jesus. Some earlier Hebrew fragments from the 2nd century B.C. were found in Egypt, and yet I think that's the ones found in Egypt are just as old as these found in Jerusalem. Barquet said the new find dug up next to St. Andrew's Church facing Mount Zion across the Hinnom Valley included the largest trove of jewelry ever uncovered in Jerusalem. Also discovered was a crab-shaped coin from the Aegean island of Kos, K-O-S, the oldest coin ever found in the city, he said. The valuables had been placed in a repository as gifts to the dead. Barke kept his find secret, giving rise to a persistent rumor of a striking discovery in Jerusalem. He described it for the first time at a lecture Sunday night, displaying some of the items on slides. The Jerusalem Post said Barke kept it secret for fear of arousing the displeasure of Orthodox Jews who oppose archaeological digging in the vicinity of the tombs. Barke denied this, saying he had waited because he wanted to decipher the inscription before displaying it. No, he had to bribe those Orthodox Jews. <laughs> yes, Second Corinthians, Mr. Kim Smith says, Second Corinthians 10.17, but he that glorieth, let him glory in Yahweh, is what it should read. It should read Yahweh. As the author here is telling us, it should. So, the practice of removing Yahweh for Kyrios or Lord has become commonplace, but that started like uh, in the 3rd century A.D. Okay, so uh, again, we we see uh, that uh, this is not necessarily a case of tampering. It's just a case of an old tradition dying out in favor of a new tradition with no, how should I, with no ill intent discoverable. It's not likely that there was any ill intent. It was just a matter of Hebrew and Aramaic dying out in favor of Greek. Okay. Final sentence of this article. He declined to say what else was written on the amulet, saying it was hard to read and was still under study. And so we know that that has been deciphered by now. Okay, so I put a link to another article in the chat room, Tetragrammaton in the New Testament, coming from... It's, I think it's called Religion Wiki. Let me open the uh, let me open the document here. Religion.fandom.com forward slash wiki forward slash tetragrammaton in the New Testament. Okay, so basically the same title that we've been working with here in this article, but oh wait a minute, there's a there's a cartoon playing. I have to <laughs> I have to pause that. Please don't start again. I don't want any noise interrupting here. Okay. Okay. So by that same title, Tetragrammaton. Okay. It's under the heading of Religion Wiki. I guess that's the short name for this website. Religion Wiki. Tetragrammaton in the New Testament. 
And there's a link here that says view source. Now, I don't know if that the source is the HTML or the original article somewhere. We'll uh, just read it as it is here. Archaeologists have discovered papyrus fragments of works which were later included in the canon of the New Testament, dating as far back as the middle of the 2nd century. Okay, I think they're talking A.D. here. Despite the fact that there are no autographs surviving until today, it is worth mentioning that of all 5,000 extant New Testament manuscripts, None contains any form of the Hebrew tetragrammaton. So I think he's talking about the post-second century period. And the author of the previous article, uh, Mr. Howard, says, yes, that is the case. And to the right, they have an inset showing three versions of the tetragrammaton, all right to left, one is Paleo-Hebrew, one is an intermediate Hebrew, but looking very much like the Paleo-Hebrew. And then we have the Aramaic version. Okay, so it says, the, tet- the ver- first one is 10th century B.C. to 135 A.D., the two versions of it. And then the next one is, what is it? Oh, okay, the, sorry, the second one is 10th century B.C. to the 4th century A.D., AD. Uh, that, and that's, sorry, that's the Aramaic alphabet, which is the bottom one. So the, the first two are Paleo-Hebrew, and the last one is Aramaic. So let's continue. One of the most ancient fragments, the Papyrus Codex designated Chester Beatty Papyrus Number 2, P46, is dated to about 100, uh, sorry, 200 A.D. It contains nine of the Apostle Paul's letters. In the Chester Beatty Papyri, we find K.C. and sometimes Theta C with a horizontal bar above them in citations of the Hebrew Bible, where the Tetragrammaton occurs in the Hebrew text. And these are the uh, Namada Sacra that Mr. Howard was talking about. This was the short form of Kyrios and Theos, the Namada Sacra, which they're talking about right here. These are abbreviations for Kyrios, Lord, and Theos, God, normally known as the Nomina Sacra, sacred names. Some scholars propose that such space-saving abbreviation was very common throughout costly ancient manuscripts. Other scholars believe that this practice was based on the Hebrew consonantal writing, especially related to the extreme care for the word Yahweh. For centuries, scholars rejected the idea of the existence of the Tetragrammaton in the copies of the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. During recent decades, though, a number of very ancient manuscripts have been discovered using some form of the Tetragrammaton into the Greek text. As a matter of fact, the oldest extant copies of the Greek Old Testament include the Tetragrammaton in Hebrew or Greek. 
Similarly, a newer thesis has been proposed that the pious Judahite authors of the New Testament used the revered name Yahweh and did not replace it with a surrogate like Lord. As a result, the Tetragrammaton was present in the New Testament autographs. Later on, it was substituted by the Nomina Sacra. So this article is confirming the work of Mr. Howard. Thank you very much. Let me take a quick sip of coffee here. Still very hot. George Howard set forth this hypothesis that Yahweh appeared originally in the New Testament and that the removal of the Tetragrammaton from the New Testament and its replacement with the surrogates Kyrios and Theos blurred the original distinction between Lord God and the Lord Christ. The weight of this position led to its inclusion in the article of the Anchor Bible Dictionary, where it is stated, quote, There is some evidence that the Tetragrammaton, the divine name Yahweh, appeared in some or all of the Old Testament quotations in the New Testament when the NT documents were first penned, unquote. Now that is significant if if it's true. So anyway, there's evidence for that, although not a lot, but it's quite likely that the for the first 200 years, they did not replace the name of Yahweh and at some point, uh, Namana Sacra, the abbreviations and the replacements, the Greek replacements, Lord and Theos, began to appear in the new copies. As it is a relatively recent thesis on an ever-changing field of study, it has not yet found wide acceptance, and Howard has qualified it, quote, My theory about the Tetragrammaton is just that, a theory. Some of my colleagues disagree with me, for example, Albert Petersma. Theories like mine are important to be set forth so that others can investigate their probability and implications. Until they are proven, and mine has not yet been proven, they should not be used as a surety for belief. Unquote. Even though Albert Petersma does not accept Howard's theory, he has stated, quote, it might possibly still be debated whether perhaps the Palestinian copies with which the New Testament authors were familiar read some form of the tetragram, tetragrammaton, rather. Okay, so the debate is not over, but it's quite likely now that Mr. Howard's thesis is correct. Now, the next section heading is Jehovah and the Greek Old Testament. Old Testament is a term credited to Tertullian used to describe the Hebrew Bible. The ancient translation of the Old Testament into Koine Greek is called the Septuagint, which continues to be the official version of the Old Testament for the Eastern, oh, sorry, Eastern Orthodox Church to this day. The Septuagint was translated prior to the birth of Jesus. He and the apostles quoted extensively from it. This is no surprise since the New Testament was itself most likely written in Greek, although a lot of evidence there's Hebrew versions as well. See Aramaic primacy for the counter-argument. All the earliest surviving manuscripts are written in Greek. 
some copies of the Greek Old Testament from the latter centuries B.C., which are translated from lost Hebrew texts, leave a blank space where the Tetragrammaton would have been. Other represent the divine name by Yah, I-A-W, Yah. Others use the template Phoenician, Paleo-Hebrew alphabet, which borrows from Phoenician uh, alpha, no, it's the other way around. I mean, this this false statement by academics that the Hebrew borrowed from the Phoenician is just totally absurd because Hebrew preceded Phoenician by thousands of years, but they still maintain this false opinion because it's Phoenician which borrows from the Hebrew. And other variations are evidence in early manuscripts. A notable version using template Phoenician is the version by Aquila of Sinope. The Septuagint was the preferred Greek translation of the Judahite Bible among Christians. And Judahites up until, or in this case, Jews is correct. And Jews up until the school of Jamnia, because we're talking about Talmudic scholars, the school of Jamnia and the Masoretic Recension at the time of the writing of the New Testament and continued to be until the Reformation, the Vulgate being primarily a translation of the Septuagint. When St. Jerome, a Roman Catholic doctor of the Church, made his translation of the Old Testament into Latin, he switched from the Septuagint of the early Church to the Masoretic. Oh, wow! That's interesting. He translated from a Masoretic Old Testament and brought Yahweh into texts officially adapted by the Western Church. This use of the Masoretic did not affect the Eastern Churches and the bulk of the late Roman Empire's population who spoke Greek, not Latin. It is stated that Origen of Alexandria included the Tetragrammaton in his Hexapla in the 3rd century A.D., Origen's hexapla was a comparison in side-by-side columns of separate versions of the Old Testament. Hebrew, Aramaic, Samaritan, and Greek translations. Jesus quoted numerous times from the Old Testament, including his replies to Satan during his temptation in the wilderness, quote, Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt Yahweh Elohim, Matthew 4. Okay, that's a direct quote from the Old Testament, Matthew 4, 7. Here, as elsewhere, the quotation is taken from the Septuagint. Now, the Babylonian Talmud. A passage in Tosefta, Shabbat 13.5, quoting Tarphon, is sometimes cited to suggest that early Christian scriptures contained the divine name. It reads, quote, The Gileah, Gileonim, and the biblical books of the Judeo-Christians, Minim, are not saved on the Sabbath from fire, but one lets them burn together with the names of God written upon them, unquote. So there's a reference to Christian writings that the Talmudic so-called sages, disapprove of and want to get rid of, okay? Uh, And, of course, we know that the 
still trying to get rid of Christianity today. Give me one second. I have to make a quick pause here. Hold on. Okay, back with you. The Jewish Encyclopedia defines the word Gileonim in the Talmud as referring to the Gospels in the time of Tarphon, whenever that was. Another reading suggests that this is a reference to Torah and not the Gospels. Next heading, Hebrew versions of the New Testament. Over the centuries, various translators have inserted the, uh, the Tetragrammaton in the New Testament when translating into Hebrew versions of the New Testament. Now, I just received a copy of a Hebrew version of the New Testament, and I haven't checked, or a Hebrew Bible, I haven't even checked to see if it has the New Testament in it. So, And if it does, I'll see if they retain the sacred names accordingly in the New Testament. Well, let me start this sentence over. One of the earliest Hebrew versions is the Gospel of Matthew translated by Shem Tob in 1385, which bears the circumlocution HaShem, meaning the name, a surrogate for the Tetragrammaton, written out or abbreviated 19 times. English versions of the New Testament. Now, let me just comment here. It would be obvious that when the New Testament is directly quoting the Old Testament, then they should retain the Tetragrammaton. And so this version, the Shem Tob version, does retain either the sacred name or the expression HaShem being a a reference to Yahweh. Next heading. English versions of the New Testament. Some English sacred name Bibles have used the Tetragrammaton in the New Testament. The the ISR, the Scriptures, in 1993, I think that's the Institute for Scriptural Research, ISR. The Scriptures in 1993 was the first translation to use the Hebrew letters for the Tetragrammaton instead of the Lord, or a transliteration, i.e. Yahweh. The Basora, which is a plagiarized version of the ISR, <laughs> the Scriptures 1998 edition, has done this using the Paleo-Hebrew script. The restored name King James Version has used the more modern Hebrew script to write it. The use of the Tetragrammaton in a Semitic alphabet within the English text is a graphic way of showing that it is a Semitic word or Hebrew word. The name Jehovah is in the text of the New World Translation's New Testament. The complete edition is available in 79 languages, with portions translated into more than 400 languages. So we're seeing from all of this commentary that the name of Yahweh does belong in the New Testament. It does belong in the New Testament. So let me just quickly uh, click on this other article here. 
textual mechanics of early Judahite Septuagint slash OG papyri and fragments. So this is a, a reference. I'm not sure what OG refers to. By Robert A. Kraft, University of Pennsylvania. Updated somewhat 18 November 2002. Which states, this is a greatly expanded and revised form of a paper first delivered in May 1998. Hampton Court, Herefordshire, England. To the conference on the Bible as book. The transmission of the Greek text, sponsored by the Van Kempen Foundation and the Scriptorium, Center for Christian Antiquities. A shorter form of the revised essay is scheduled to appear in the volume being prepared from that conference. And I think there's a there's a link to it here. The image of manuscripts provided here are secondary and provisional in nature, mostly drawn from the reference publications and intended to help illustrate various aspects of the subject under examination. For a quick list of the fragments reviewed here, see early papyri and manuscripts for this heading here. Okay, so here it is, and you see if I have about 15 minutes left, and uh, this is a, a fairly... Decent article here, I can see from just looking at it. One second, have to wet my whistle again. Exploring pre-Constantinian developments of the LXX, LXX means Septuagint, and OG, not sure, maybe it's a reference to Origin, because they were saying Origin did something similar. In light of early papyri and related texts, for the conference on the Bible as book, which we title we wrote uh, read already, and this is Robert A. Kraft speaking. Now he's from the University of Pennsylvania. My interest in the subject is nearly as old as my own wissenschaftlich career. <laughs> wissenschaftlich means scientific. When it came to choosing a subject for my Harvard dissertation some 40 years ago, I was torn between analyzing the pre-hexaplaric fragments of Greek Judahite scriptures and the topic I finally selected, the use of Judahite sources in the Epistle of Barnabas. My Dr. Fater, or my Dr. Father, Christer Stendhal, encouraged me towards the latter since he felt that it could receive better direction at the time than the LXX slash OG topic. He also recommended me for my first full-time teaching job at the University of Manchester since he thought I might find there the archives from the Brooke McLean Thackeray Manson quote, larger Cambridge Septuagint. Wow, I didn't know there was such a Septuagint project to nourish that side of my developing interests. I found no such archives. Okay. Well, I had never heard of that version of the Septuagint. If it exists, it probably hasn't been you know, distributed in any great amount. Meanwhile, however, I had compiled a loose-leaf notebook with as much information as I could gather on the earliest Septuagint fragments 
arranged book by book in order of the current canonical sequence, and when Bass Van Elderen offered me this assignment, it seemed like a good opportunity to reacquaint myself with some old fragmentary friends. Gathering the raw data. My first impulse was to create a computer file of the materials of which I had been aware 40 years ago, which I hastened to do, and then to rearrange those materials in roughly chronological order, based on the well-known vagrancies of available paleographical estimations. I then... Vagrancies? I think he meant to say vagaries. <laughs> a vagrant is a derelict. <laughs> but maybe he does mean to say derelict. <laughs> I then turned to the main tools of which I was aware that had appeared since about 1959 that could help me supplement the list. Kurt Troy's, that's T-R-E-U, Kurt Troy's 1973 Kairos article on, quote, the significance of Greek for the Judahites of the Roman Empire, there would be no significance of Greek to the Jews of the Roman Empire, with his appendix on possibly Jewish biblical fragments. Joseph Van Halst's, <laughs> Halst, H-A-L-S-T-S, L-S-T, apostrophe S, 1976 catalog of Jewish, and it really means Judahite, and Christian papyri. Eric Turner's 1977, The Typology of the Early Codex. Colin Roberts' 1977, Schweich Lectures on Manuscript, Society, and Belief in the Early, in early Christian Egypt. And the new editions of individual Greek texts, especially by John Weavers in the Göttingen series. Initially, I spread a wide net, attempting to catch everything prior to the success of Christianity under Constantine, and thus listing all papyri and related materials in Greek dated to the 4th century A.D. and earlier. As I said, it was a wide net, and it caught about 120 separate items, not all of them papyri, including a dozen that are dated to the 1st century, or earlier, and are almost certainly certifiably Judahite in origin. Of the 2nd to 4th century AD fragments, another half dozen have been claimed as Judahite by one or another of the respected authorities. Unanimity, of course, is difficult to obtain in this sort of Wissenschaft or science, Bible science. The textual work of origin circa 185 to 253, in producing the multi-column tool for studying and improving the extant text of Judahite scriptures in his day, is usually viewed as a watershed in the study of the development of the Greek Christian OT manuscripts. Not only does Origen's Hexapla, in its various forms and formats, offer information about the Greek and Hebrew Aramaic texts, available to him in the first part of the 3rd century, but to the extent that his endeavor to improve existing Septuagint texts was successful, his work became a major factor in complicating... <laughs> Wait a minute. We're supposed to... Knowledge shouldn't complicate things. 
<laughs> anyway, his work became a major factor in complicating the subsequent textual situation. In the two or three generations immediately following Origen, we also hear of extensive recensional work attributed to the now mysterious persons of Hesychius and Lucian. With this in mind, the quest for texts not affected by these well-intentioned efforts becomes important to the student of the development of Greek Judaite scriptures, the Septuagint, and related materials. One way of approaching the problem is to try to identify texts and readings that do not show influence from Origen's Hexapla or other roughly contemporary recensional developments and use that as a criterion for the identifying presumably earlier materials. The textual apparatuses of the best available Septuagint editions are filled with relevant information about such textual affinities. So, although he hasn't cited any citations yet of where the sacred names have been found, these are included down later, he's giving this uh, very detailed description of what his research consists of. So here we go. One more, one more sentence before the next heading. Another approach to which this report attempts to contribute is to use chronological considerations for isolating materials that could not have been influenced by the work of these early critics because the materials predate the period when the 3rd and early 4th century products would have begun to cast their shadows. Manuscripts and fragments that predate the early 3rd century are obviously the most significant in this regard, but any items that can reasonably be considered pre-Constantinian, early 4th century, have an excellent chance of being uncontaminated for these purposes, and by as he's got the word uncontaminated in quotes, meaning there, a lot of these recensions include opinions of people like Origen. Now here we go, the manuscript fragments. There are various convenient lists and collections from which to gather these early witnesses to the development of the Septuagint. A new one was released on CD-ROM in August 1998 by Willie Clarice at the Papyrological Congress in Florence. Otherwise, to my knowledge, the most complete is the catalog by Joseph Van Helst, which appeared in 1976. Van Helst includes appendices in which he lists Judahite and Christian materials by date, from earliest to latest, and also provides statistics for what he has listed, roughly generation by generation, early 2nd century, 2nd century in general, late 2nd century, 2nd, 3rd century, etc. Around the same time, the respected papyrologist Eric G. Turner produced his study for the, of the development of the early codex, which also provides similar chronological lists of all codices known to him. Finally, still from the late 1970s, the Schweich lectures by Colin Roberts, also in their own way, survey much of the relevant material. Partly in response to Kurt Troy's list of possibly Judahite fragments from his 1973 article. I've put these lists together in what follows and have tried to adjust the controversial datings toward Turner's ju judgment. 
on the belief that an experienced paleographer looking at the entire range of materials in a comparative way is more likely to be accurate than our individual editors who have seen only parts of the picture. Of course, paleographical judgments remain subject to modification and are at best approximations based on certain assumptions about consistency, development, etc. Well, I would say that any appearance of the Paleo-Hebrew in the Septuagint, whatever date it is given, it has, has got to be significant. In the following list, which is arranged in roughly chronological order according to the paleographical estimations, the Judahite and possibly... Oh, uh, the Judahite and possibly Judahite fragments, so I'm not sure if they are in fact Judahite, is his meaning here, including some unidentified early pieces and marked with an asterisk. Items are presented with the Göttingen number in brackets, when known, followed by the Van Helst number. Generous assistance in locating some of the fragments has been received from Matthew Hamilton, Moore Theological College Library. First King Street, New South Wales, Australia, and is gratefully acknowledged. See also Emmanuel Tov's article in the Petersma Festschrift festival uh, writing mentioned in my draft link below. So you can see that the scholarship about the existence of Paleo-Hebrew in the Septuagint as far back as they can possibly go, and of course, and as far into the future as they could possibly go, is a multinational, multi-continental endeavor, and apparently is ongoing, because of, you know we will find manuscripts of the Septuagint. Still, they're still in the process of finding such manuscripts. And when, whenever the Paleo-Hebrew version of the Tetragrammaton occurs, they will add it to this research, which is a good thing. So the, the rest of this article is nothing but references uh, to the various finds that uh, are relevant. And it's quite a long list here of finds where such uh, such Paleo-Hebrew script is found. So, ongoing, but the important thing here, ladies and gentlemen, is we have found, I consider it proof, that the name of Yahweh was contained in the earliest Greek manuscripts written by Judahite Christians. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Free people will never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Yahweh and pass the ammunition. The Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James.